Welcome to A Pot Up on a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland, and this is going to be part two of 8-1 Notes. We're covering Truman and the Cold War. Here we go. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savagely. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. To find the origins of the Cold War, one needs to look no further than the Yalta Conference in February of 1945. FDR negotiates with Stalin and is left with the decision to keep the Soviet Union on the side of the Allies till the conclusion of the war, until the conclusion of the Pacific Theater, it is necessary in FDR's mind to give Stalin what he wants, which is control of Eastern Europe. And even though the Western democracies wanted elections to take place, this is what he decided was the most pragmatic decision for this moment. The political reality forced him into that decision, and he was hoping to renegotiate. Unfortunately for FDR, as we know, he was never given that opportunity. It is now Truman's job to deal with Joseph Stalin in the post-World War II world, and now, as we see, the Cold War coming into shape. So when we evaluate Truman's policies, there's really three different um, avenues in which it's viewed in this moment. There are some historians that say that Truman's policies were really just a reflection of the overall misunderstanding that America had of Russian behavior. Uh, we were misinformed on their history, we were misinformed in their culture, and we might have over-exaggerated the brute force in which they were willing to resort to, and maybe overestimated their uh, unwillingness to engage in diplomacy. Um, other historians say that Truman's uh, policies that he put in place were just the reasonable and appropriate measures given what Stalin was doing in his aggressive expansion. And then you also have the critics that say that Truman really was soft on the expansion of communism early on, and he should have done more aggressive uh, and maneuvers and made more aggressive attempts to prevent this expansion of communism in the immediate events following World War II. But when we look back at the relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States, um, sometimes we have a little bit of recency bias and we think about ourselves as allies coming out of World War II, but from the very beginning of the Soviet Union in 1917 after the Bolshevik Revolution, we have to know that the United States had always viewed the Soviet Union as a threat to all capitalist countries. And in the United States, our culture with the Red Scare in 1919, um, with the fact that we did not even um, recognize the United, uh, excuse me, the Soviet Union as a legitimate country until 1933, we were never going to be pals. It was just the fact that we were uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and therefore that is what brought us to become allies during World War II. FDR had never really trusted Stalin and the Soviet Union, and that, tr that lack of trust was confirmed early on before the war even started with the non-aggression pact that Stalin signed with Hitler. 
So we take this mentality forward with us as a nation as we engage in the post-war world and specifically in the creation of the United Nations. Early on, when the Soviet Union is granted as one of the five permanent seats at the Security Council, all those seats gaining the power to veto any uh, legislation or agreement that comes through the United Nations, um, one of the early proposals was for a regulation, an atomic energy commission to kind of reduce and regulate nuclear energy and specifically trying to eliminate atomic weapons. When the Soviet Union rejected this proposal, the United States viewed this as a sign that they were not here for peaceful intentions. And um, this was kind of reiterated when the United States offered them to participate in the International Bank uh, and the Reconstruction Development at the Bretton Woods Conference in the United States in 1944. It's basically a huge conference of the most powerful economic forces in the world to try and rebuild the war-torn uh, countries all around the, uh, the globe. Uh, the Soviet Union viewed this as a capitalist movement and they would not participate for that reason. This is an instrument of capitalism and we refuse to participate. The one thing that they did participate in was the Nuremberg trials in 45 and 46 where the 22 top Nazi leaders were charged and convicted of war crimes and violations against human rights. So um, it was said by the United States Chief Counsel that these atrocities during the war when it comes to the Holocaust were so egregious that they could not be ignored because humankind could not risk that they be repeated. Uh, and this is part of why the Nuremberg trials are so crucial to establish what we as a people would never be able to tolerate or allow in our society. And that's what's so important about the Nuremberg trials. When we go forward, we see that the initial battleground for the Cold War was in Eastern Europe. Now, Soviet forces are still in occupying the countries in Central and Eastern Europe, but the Soviets did hold elections for these countries, as was promised by Stalin at the Alta Conference. Obviously, we know these elections were manipulated. They were to favor communist candidates. In 46 and 48, communist dictators loyal to the Soviet Union come into power in all of Eastern Europe, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Albania, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia. So people that actually were apologists for the Soviet action realized that, you know, this is their need to build a buffer states to protect them from Western influence and their ideologies. This is not something that we should deem outrageous. But critics of the Soviet action said that if they're going to do this, then they are willing to take over other Eastern European countries and therefore, hopefully, and from their mindset, is one country at a time, they weren't looking to spread uh, communist influence. So this is a clear violation of what was supposed to be a self-determination and a genuine democracy where open markets were taking place. The result of the Potsdam Conference is also important, and that is the occupation zones in Germany. Germany is carved up into four regions. Um, it initially was supposed to be temporary. It was just supposed to be a way in which um, the Allies handled the rebuilding and restructuring of Germany politically and economically, but uh, it ended up becoming a dispute over um, national security and economic needs of the, of the countries. So we saw that early on the eastern zone, uh, the Soviet Union was really focused on uh, making that a communist state, and it becomes a German Democratic Republic within a few years. Um, the Soviets, if from their perspective, you can understand how they would want Germany to be weakened after this war, after being their opponents in two world wars and constantly having to deal with the aggressive 
um, German military invading uh, Russia on two different occasions. Um, so they wouldn't were not interested in rebuilding Germany and helping Germany going forward. They wanted war reparations to be very punitive because economically they wanted Germany to suffer. They wanted to be the nation that would control Eastern Europe, no longer uh, having to worry about the German influence. But the United States and Britain saw things very differently. They saw Germany as the key to establishing that all of Europe and stabilizing all of Central Europe for the future. So they refused reparations to be paid to the Soviet Union. Um, and their zone did not want to stifle the German economy. Uh, they thought that helping to build and to um, grow the German economy was essential to maintaining peace. In 1946, we see a shift in Truman's attitude towards the Soviet Union, largely because he had grown tired of what he said, quote, I am tired of babying the Soviets. He thought they were kind of playing with kid gloves a little too much instead of kind of treating them the way in which he believed they should be treated, especially with the recent evidence of kind of aggressive tactics, specifically the way in which they were caught with a Canadian spying, trying to steal atomic secrets, as well as the occupation of northern Iran. Um, so Truman is actually present when Winston Churchill is giving an, his famous Iron Curtain speech um, in Missouri. And that is where Winston Churchill calls for a partnership between Western democracies. And he says that there has been an Iron Curtain descending across the continent of Europe, using this metaphor to try and say that there is a divide between Soviets and Western democracies going forward. And it is on all Western democracies to work together to prevent and to halt the expansion of communism. Historians still debate to this day whether or not that speech anticipated the Cold War or whether or not it helped to cause it. Uh, and now we move on to the most important policy of all the Cold War, which is the policy of containment. Truman really adopts this idea from the advice of his three top advisors, and the, their goal is to try and contain Soviet aggression all around the world. Uh, General George Marshall, Sean Axon, and George F. Kennan are the three advisors. And when he gives his speech announcing this policy, he believes that this should be a long-term, patient but firm, and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies. And this is something that um, is a drastic departure from our prior uh, foreign policy of isolationism throughout most of American history to avoid foreign entanglements. Um, we saw a brief period of interventionism during American expansionism and imperialism. Um, but this is a clear statement, along with the establishment of the United Nations, that the United States is going to be involved in world affairs and that we are going to make sure that there will be uh, a lack of um, aggression around the world, and we will be there to try and uh, avoid any expansion of communist vision. World domination by the communists is not something that we will allow. We are going to try and establish that all countries will be able to live in peace with other nations. People that are critical of this policy have basically also coined the term Cold War, is that in many ways this was a situation where the United States security was only vital in certain areas. And some governments deserve U.S. support and others do not. So containment was a way in which we wouldn't give one inch of the chessboard away, when in reality we should have just been controlled, uh, or excuse me, focused on containing the spread of communism to maybe the Western Hemisphere. And maybe that would have been a more pragmatic uh, policy during this era. But 
American leaders also were concerned that this would be a policy that is similar to appeasement, that if we had gone along with um, allowing the expansion of communism until it was our problem, then we might get dragged into another war like we did in World War II. So um, what we have is the establishment of what is known as the Truman Doctrine, and it is implemented in a way to try and prevent other Western democracies from turning into communist countries. So we are. it was a way to try and prevent the spread and specifically two countries uh, in Europe, Greece, and in Turkey. So we have a communist-led uprising that takes place against the government of Greece, and the Soviets are demanding for some type of control in the water route in Turkey uh, and the Strait of the Dardanelles. This would have been crucial to their access to the Middle East and access to oil, um, and the combination of them controlling Greece and Turkey at the same time would have been devastating to, from the American point of view in terms of Soviet Union controlling the Middle East with the incredibly vital resource of oil. Um, so what we decide to do is rather than confront Soviet Union, what Truman does is he asks Congress for $400 million in economic and military aid. And by doing this, he's going to try and assist the free people of Greece and Turkey against these totalitarian regimes. Now, you have to think about what would be the best environment for communism to flourish. It would be one that is in going through economic hardship. So the view of American policy of containment is if we infuse economic aid and military aid to help them defend themselves, in these areas, it will be less likely for these countries to fall into the grasp of communism because we will show them that free markets and, and economic capitalism can be the way in which they can get out of the doldrums of the aftermath of World War II. Um, and, and that is why we get our hand uh, and get involved with economic aid on such a massive scale. Never before had a country given away $400 million of aid to another nation. Only that type of uh, spending was done during the New Deal domestically. Um, but this doctrine gained bipartisan support by both Republicans and Democrats because it was viewed as being in the nation's um, vital national security interest. And that is why it is the first step of the Truman Doctrine to be successful. When we expand upon that, we also have what is known as the Marshall Plan. This goes one step further. Uh, the Marshall Plan was ways in which we specifically target all of the Western European countries by seeing the success of the um, initial infusion of cash into Greece and Turkey. We are concerned of communism spreading all throughout Western Europe. So General Marshall comes up with this plan, and we offer cash to any Western democracy that is willing to take it. And we, we kind of market this as a European re recovery program. We have $17 billion of American taxpayer money that is used during this plan. In 1948, we decide to give another $12 billion in aid that is approved for distribution in other countries of Western Europe over a four-year period. We offer the Soviet Union this opportunity saying, hey, we are helping these nations rebuild. Will you allow us to aid the countries that you have on, as your satellite states, the countries that are behind the Iron Curtain? And as a point of pride and as a point of principle, the Soviet Union refuses because that would be seen as a message to their people and to the world that the communist nations are not capable of taking care of themselves, that they would need help from the rich Western countries of the United States and others. So with the Soviets refusing, you see a dramatic difference in the Eastern European countries behind the Iron Curtain in their economic pros uh, prosperity after World War II and the um, gradual 
ascent of the Western democracies with the Marshall Plan um, financial aid uh, that helped provide them the ability to rebuild their economies over time. Uh, this ends up playing out specifically in the capital of Germany in Berlin. If you remember those four uh, demilitarized zones that we have sectioned off, one of the unique situations here is the capital itself, the capital of Germany, Berlin, is located in the eastern district of Germany, uh, the district that has now been under the control of the Soviet Union. Well, the Allies also decided to carve that section up into west and east Berlin. One of the things that we notice as time is going on is that by June of 1948, the Soviets have made the decision to cut off all access by land to Berlin. Um, what they hope, were hoping for was that the Soviets uh, would be able to uh, keep the rest of the Western countries from accessing Berlin. And maybe we would just kind of throw our hands up and say, all right, you can have it. They were hoping to be able to control the capital. But uh, the Western democracies didn't give up. And one of the things that we do is one of the most impressive, uh, logistical, and well-executed plans in the history of mankind is that Truman dis dismisses any plan to withdraw and decides instead to try to force open the roads of these with armed forces. This became kind of a uh, game of chicken in which we weren't willing to go the, ex the step in which we could go into armed conflict. So instead, Truman decides, well... Let's use United States planes to send supplies to the people of West Berlin instead. So for weeks, we airlifted on a continuous roll. There was all said, I believe there were 200,000 flights over the course of a year and a half. Um, and they were basically flying over and there were 60 bombers capable of holding an atomic bomb to England. So this is something from the Soviet perspective, they don't know what's going on here. They see these aircraft coming in and they have the opportunity to shoot them down and they decide not to. They decide, Stalin decides not to challenge the airlift. So for 11 months, um, all the way until May 1949, the American um, Air Force is dropping aid and food and supplies to Western Berlin. And at the, the peak of it, we're getting 600 flights a day. Um, we actually are dropping more goods and services in and supplies into Western Berlin than ever we're getting there by um, by land before they actually blockaded the um, the entrance to Berlin. So uh, Truman ends up deciding to stand up to Joe, uh, Joseph Stalin, and this is a huge way in which he's responsible for his 1948 re-election, um, the way in which he is viewed as someone that is tough enough to protect the country and stand up to the vicious uh, dictator, Joe Stalin. Uh, and then in, as we go forward in 1949, we start to see the role in which allies in the new order uh, during the Cold War are going to be very important. So we break our longstanding tradition and we establish our first peacetime alliance, a permanent alliance in the history of our country. And it is recommended by Washington to never do this, but Truman believes that this is the necessary thing to do for this time. Specifically, 10 European nations join the United States and Canada to form what is known as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And NATO is still in place today. The goal of NATO when it was put in place was specifically to um, prevent communist expansion and belligerency, 
But just like many of the alliances that led to the outbreak of World War I, the Article 6 of NATO says that if one nation is attacked, all other member nations will come to their defense. And that is the most important part of it. Uh, six years later, the Soviet Union counters by them basically creating their form of a military defense pact called the Warsaw Pact. And so all of this is taking place in the effort to try and prevent the Soviet Union from expanding. And from the American perspective and the Western democracy perspective is protecting these countries from falling into the grasp of the Red uh, Communists. Um, in 1947, we passed what's known as the National Security Act, which is trying to modernize the United States' capabilities. We create the uh, Department of Defense is centralized, and we have the Army, Navy, and Air Force instead of the way in which they were all branched off in separate divisions in the, in the past. We also create what we have uh, still to this day is known as the National Security Council, and that is um, a group of advisors to the president to help establish foreign policy during the Cold War. The creation of the Central Intelligence Agency is a uh, network and web of spies to gather information on foreign governments, specifically the Soviet Union. And all of this has taken place during, uh, um, during this era because of the tensions of the Cold War. In 1948, we have the Selective Service System and a peacetime draft is instituted so that we still are uh, ready in case of war foreign conflict is to take place. Now, uh, at the conclusion of World War II, we see that we are the only atomic and nuclear power in the world. Uh, we had a monopoly on atomic weapons for the five years after the conclusion of the war. But in the fall of 1949, the Soviet Union tests their first atomic weapon. Um, when we, when uh, the Soviet Union does this, Truman also approves the development of a hydrogen bomb, which is 1,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And by 1952, the United States would have a hydrogen bomb in their arsenal. This would lead to the development of an arms race as we saw the Cold War go forward. But a few years earlier, the National Security Council actually recommended a secret report known as NSC-68. These measures that they recommended were a method in which the United States would be best suited to fight the Cold War. The first statement was to quadruple the United States government defense spending to 20% of the gross national product, basically a huge peacetime increase uh, that could be justified by, to the American public simply by the fact that a costly arms buildup was imperative for the nation's defense. The other thing that was crucial, according to the National Security Council, was forming alliances with the non-communist countries around the world. We already had NATO, and now we we're going to expand beyond NATO to have alliances with um, countries that we felt were vulnerable to these type of um, expansionist policies by the Soviet Union. Uh, critics of NATO and the defense buildup argue that Truman administration really intensifies Russian fears, and they really started an unnecessary arms race. But regardless, NATO became one of the most successful military alliances in history, and in combination with deterrent power of nuclear weapons, NATO basically effectively checked Soviet expansion in Europe and thereby maintained an uneasy peace until the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. It's obviously not that simple, though. There are many events along the way in the next 30 years. Um, now, when we shift over to the Cold War and what's taking place in Asia, the key element of that is as we're rebuilding um, Germany, at the same time, we are also rebuilding Japan. 
But unlike what is happening in Europe, the United States is not able to establish a successful containment policy in Asia. In a large fact, because following World War II, the old imperialist system, specifically in India and Southeast Asia, had crumbled. Many of these um, new nations were former colonies. And because these new nations had different cultural and political traditions and bitter memories of the Western colonialism, they resisted United States influence. Um, ironically, the Asian nation that became the most closely tied to the U.S. was its former enemy, the Japanese. And that's largely because we had complete control over Japan. Uh, General Douglas MacArthur had complete authority, uh, and he was one of the uh, leaders in the effort to try and execute the war criminals from the Japanese empire. We also, the United States, had a uh, incredible influence on facilitating the creating the implementation of their new constitution. We set up a parliamentary democracy, which is very different from ours. It's much more like the British system. And uh, there are a few stipulations. The emperor had to remain, uh, could remain in his position, but must give up his claims to divinity. We would limit the Japanese military and the Japanese would be dependent on the United States for protection from other countries, which allowed us to have influence in the region. The United States and Japanese security treaties started in 1951. We forced the Japanese to surrender their claims to Korea and the islands in the Pacific, and we ended our formal occupation of Japan that same year. The United States have remained in military bases in Japan for the country's protection against external enemies, particularly communists, and we have military bases in Japan to this present day. The Philippines and the Pacific, July 4th, 1946, the Philippines finally become an independent republic in accordance with the act passed by Congress in 1934. The U.S. held a military presence there throughout the Cold War, but it was a sovereign nation. China, on the other hand, would play a major role in the Cold War, in a large part because of the way it fell into a civil fight as soon as the World War II concluded. The Chinese nationalists, led by Chiang Kai-shek, continue fighting with communists led by Mao Zedong. The nationalists eventually lose popularity, largely because of the post-war inflation and the widespread corruption. The communists earn the admiration of the large peasant class in China. The United States here is uh, thinking this is the worst-case scenario. We're trying to establish a policy of containment, and here we are with one of the largest nations in the entire world is turning and going to become communist. So Truman decides to send Marshall to negotiate a settlement to end the Civil War, but he ends up failing to do so. In 47, the Nationalists are on retreat. Truman stalls on what to do. He doesn't know what the next step should be. And then we end up seeing in 1948, Congress votes to give the Chinese Nationalists $400 million in aid, but 80% of military supplies ends up in communist hands due to the state of affairs. The Nationalists weren't even capable of receiving the help from the United States. Because of this, we end up having a two-China policy going forward. The nationalists retreat to this small island of Formosa, which now we know as Taiwan. Chiang Kai-shek still is supported by the United States, and we are considering him the legitimate ruler of China. So for many years, the United States only associates on a diplomatic basis with Taiwan. We did not acknowledge Mao Zedong and the communist rule over mainland China. Uh, finally, that happens uh, in Beijing in 1979 when Nixon famously goes to meet with Mao, um, the uh, communist nation of China. 
The Republicans blamed the Democrats for the loss of China. And in 1950, Stalin and Mao signed the Sino-Soviet Pact, which validated the fears of a worldwide communist conspiracy that we had hoped we would be able to prevent with our policy of containment. An extension of the, uh, the growth of communism in China ends up becoming a uh, battle in what we know as the Korean War. The unique thing about the Korean War is that we did not declare war. This is actually a United Nations peacekeeping mission that we take place and take part in and we are the leaders in. But after World War II, Korea was occupied by Japan during war. It's been divided along the 38th parallel. The Soviet Union had occupied northern Korea and the Soviet uh, the U.S. forces, excuse me, and occupied Southern Korea. In 1949, both countries withdraw their forces. But there's an invasion. In June of 1950, the North Korean army invaded South Korea in the effort to try and unify the peninsula of Korea to one nation. Truman calls for a special session of the U.N. Security Council. Um, because of this, the Soviet Union boycotts the participation in the Security Council. And with the U.S. leadership, we end up getting an authorization from the United Nations to have a police action, which is the first one of its uh, in the history of the United Nations. And it is a, a police action against the invasion of the northern Koreans into the South Korean Peninsula. The U.S. ends up leading this coalition by General Douglas MacArthur, at first, the war in Korea went badly as the North Koreans pushed the combined South Korean and American forces to the tip of the peninsula. However, General MacArthur reversed the war with a brilliant amphibious assault at Incheon behind the North Korean lines. UN forces then proceeded to destroy much of the North Korean army, advancing northward almost as far as the Chinese border. MacArthur failed to heed China's warnings, though. They said that they would resist any threats to its security. And in November of 1950, masses of Chinese troops crossed the border into Korea. They overwhelmed the United Nations forces, and one of the worst defeats in U.S. military history drove them out of North Korea. This is what led Truman to have to confront MacArthur. MacArthur had stabilized the fighting near the 38th parallel, but at the same time, he called for expanding the war. He wanted to include bombing and invading of mainland of China. Now, as commander-in-chief, Truman cautioned MacArthur about making public statements that suggested criticism of official U.S. policy. But the general was brash and spoke out anyway. In April of 1951, Truman, with the support of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, recalled MacArthur for insubordination. And this is one of the unique factors of the United States and our government, is the fact that we have a civilian-led military. We have an, uh, a civilian elected to the presidency who is the commander-in-chief that makes all decisions in the military. And you cannot have a military general overruling an elected official who is the commander-in-chief. MacArthur returned home as a hero. Most Americans understood his statement that there is no substitute for victory, but better than the president's containment policy and the concept of a limited war. Critics attacked Truman and the Democrats as appeasers for not trying to destroy communism in Asia. MacArthur even was calling for possibly using another atomic bomb or testing out a hydrogen bomb on China. He didn't care. What he wanted was he was so involved in the conflict that he wanted to win at all costs. And this is what brought us to the armistice. 
The war never ends in a victory or a defeat for anyone. We end up just ending right where we started. In 1953, we finally sign an armistice where we basically end up at the 38th parallel just where we started. We have more than 2.5 million people dead and 54,000 Americans have died in this conflict with very little accomplished. And this is one of the criticisms of the containment policy. We see it again later in Vietnam is that we get involved in conflicts that almost are unwinnable just for the sake of maintaining the status quo. And we lose thousands, sometimes millions of lives uh, on both sides simply to fight over territory in Southeast Asia. So the political consequences are technically containment worked. It successfully stopped communist country from spreading to a democratic one without starting another world war. This conflict, though, was a brutal one. Other consequences that some viewed containment to have failed. All it did was show the world that the U.S. was soft on communism, and many viewed the Korean War as an embarrassing defeat of the U.S. forces by the Red Army in China showed that all America's military might was not as invincible as we once thought. And this brings us to the second Red Scare. Just as the Red Scare had followed the U.S. victory in World War I, a second Red Scare followed us in World War II. In many cases, it was Truman's administration that had the tendency to see a communist conspiracy behind civil wars in Europe and Asia that contributed to the belief that communist conspirators and spies may have infiltrated American society including even the United States State Department or the U.S. military. So because of this, there are certain steps that the Truman administration take. The first is a loyalty review board. Truman, largely under the pressure from his Republican critics, set up a board to investigate the background of over 3 million federal employees suspected of communist sympathies. Thousands of officials and civil service employees either resigned or lost their jobs between 1947 and 1951 simply because of the fact that they were questioned for their loyalty to America. There were also prosecutions under what was known as the Smith Act, where leaders of the American Communist Party were jailed for advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government. In the case of Dennis V. United States in 1951, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the Smith Act in 1940, which made it illegal to advocate or teach the overthrow of the government by force or to belong to an organization with this objective. The American Communist Party largely was targeted under this Smith Act. And this also led to the McCarran International Security Act. This was passed over Truman's veto. It made it unlawful to advocate for the support of establishment of a totalitarian government. It restricted employment and travel to those joining communist front organizations, and it authorized the creation of detention camps for subversives. Detention camps for subversives. Well, this sounds a lot like maybe what was going on in the Soviet Union prior to World War II. And these are things that we have to be careful of going forward, is that is loyalty so important that we are willing to jail people for being political opposition? Um, Obviously, people causing chaos and civil war and some type of uh, uprising in society or a call to action, as we saw with um, the Espionage and Sedition Acts after World War I, are important. But we have to be careful that we don't 
give up our freedom simply for the idea of protection of our security. The Un-American Activities Committee, known as HUAC, the House of Representatives uh, establishes this, trying to seek out Nazi sympathizers in the 1930s. But now, after World War II, we are now seeking out communist sympathizers. And this committee investigated public officials. They even went after organizations like the Boy Scouts and really went after actors in Hollywood. Any who failed to comply with the investigation were tried for contempt of Congress and blacklisted. There were thousands blacklisted in their industries and refused to get work. Most famously, we have uh, the cultural impact is that the Red Scare really incited a wave of collective panic and jingoism, fear of outsiders around the world. Specifically, Arthur Miller, famous playwright, comes under attack for being un-American. Loyalty oaths are required of writers and teachers on the condition of employment. We will not give you this job unless you're loyal to America. And this just seems a little bit aggressive. At no point in our history have we ever required and proven loyalty. American citizens have loyalty because of the rights that they're given in our country when you become an American citizen or when you're born an American citizen. Uh, and these are things that, uh, unfortunately, were up for grabs in this era largely because of fear. And the most famous of the espionage cases have to do with this, uh, specifically the man El Alger Hiss. <coughs> Alger Hiss was convicted of being a spy and he was a prominent State Department official who had assisted FDR during the Alta Conference. Whitaker Chambers, a confessed communist, became the star witness for Huac in 1948, and he was found to have been uh, convicted of perjury, not for spying, but perjury, where he denied the accusation that he was a communist and had given secret documents to Chambers. But what this did, the Alger Hiss case, was there was some proof later on when we look at KGB records to prove that he was involved in some type of spying. So it validated the fear of communist infiltration within the U.S. government, the fact that this was someone who was a member of the State Department and a high-up official so far that could advise the president. We also see the Rosenberg case, where Americans were convinced that spies had helped the Soviets steal nuclear technology. Klaus, Klaus Fuchs, was a British scientist who worked on the Manhattan Project, and he admitted giving A-bomb secrets to the Russians. An FBI investigation linked him to another spy, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, in New York. After a controversial trial in 1951, both Rosenbergs were found guilty of treason and were executed in 1953. Now, Julius, there was some evidence to show that Julius was in connection with this, but Ethel, his wife, was convicted and executed um, and this is interesting to see whether or not a wife should be held responsible for the sins of her husband. Uh, many people accused her of, if your husband did this, you had to have known, and that's why she was part of this. This heightened sensitivity to communism in our country leads to and creates an opportunity for the rise of Joseph McCarthy. And McCarthyism is one of the more famous isms that we're going to cover all year. And this is a Republican senator from Wisconsin who really just saw this as an opportunity to gain really national attention for his reelection campaign. He gave a speech where he accused that there were 205 communists that were still working in the State Department. It was a sensational accusation. And one of the things that um, 
McCarthy was guilty of was that he had zero evidence, but just would go on as an attack dog to try and make himself one of the most powerful men in America. By attacking these other people and accusing them of this thing, it's very hard to prove that you are not something. How, how can you prove that you do not believe in unicorns? Um, this is something that he would accuse people of. And by keeping the media attention on him, he really raised his class and he became a household name. Working class Americans loved how aggressive he was, his hard-hitting remarks. Republicans loved him attacking many of the Democrats that uh, were their opponents. And eventually, when push came to shove, his popularity worn out because people were, he was exposed for not really having any evidence and for just being a blowhard. Famously, the Army McCarthy hearings was when a senatorial committee hearing on communist infiltration in the Army was televised, and it very quickly showed the radicalism of McCarthy when he was accusing these decorated generals of being communists, and he clearly had no evidence. He would hold up a piece of paper and wave it in, in the television to make sure everybody saw it, but uh, there was no actual evidence of anything that would help him defend his claims. By December, there was a bipartisan effort to officially censure McCarthy in, in Congress by his colleagues. And this would be the conclusion of the McCarthy era. This is the end of 8-1 Notes. We will pick up next time with the Eisenhower administration and the continuation of the Cold War. Thanks for listening. Take care.